Hello and welcome to Bringing Design Closer. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service designer and trainer based in Dublin City, Ireland. Bringing Design Closer is a podcast dedicated on shining the light on the complexities of embedding design within organisations. Human-centred design has been getting quite a lot of bad press over the last number of months, questioning how it's a fad and how it misses the mark in many, many ways. Now, I tend to agree with many of these points, and today we will speak about the role of human-centred design in regards to designing inclusive services. Now, I caught up with Christine Hempel, MD of Open Inclusion in London. Now, Christine has led an amazing life, and without spoiling too much about this episode up front, we chat about how a fundraising effort for her nephew changed not only her perspective on life but her entire career too. We chat about Open Inclusion's design framework and what we can do as design practitioners to ensure that what we design works towards meeting a broader set of needs. Now I've added a link to that framework in the show notes if you want to follow along but anyway let's get straight into this episode. Christina Hampel a very warm welcome to bringing design closer how are you doing? Really well, thanks, Jerry. Lovely talking to you, Christine. Where, where are we? Where are we coming from today? I'm in London today. Not so sunny, but uh, yeah. So, Christine, tell us a little bit about um, what you do and uh, how you got into it. So, I'm an inclusive researcher and designer. Um, I run a company called Open Inclusion, based here out of London, and I got into it as many people do in inclusive design or research in a fairly roundabout way. So I came in you know, with an innovation and, and change background in large organisations, took a little bit of a segue uh, midlife, had a bit of midlife crisis for many and uh, went and took a segue into sports on the way. And when I came back into the kind of professional sphere, came into digital design, realised that a lot of digital design was same, same, but different and thought we'd differentiate ourselves more fundamentally on real use mm. value and used inclusive design as that. So both you know, content and inclusive design and accessibility of, of uh, the products were how we differentiated. And then I found that was actually the really fun bit. So rather than do that within a design agency, um, I created an agency just to do that, supporting other design agencies and organisations. So bringing the voice of you know, consumers with any other, any specific needs um, into the design process right at the beginning and, and measuring the outcome at the end. Yeah, you've actually, um, you mentioned something there and you've been extremely humble about, you know, your midlife crisis and, and getting into um, getting into a bit of sports. You're actually a world triathlete champion. Tell I, us a little bit about that. I was back when, uh, well, actually, funnily enough, that was also my route into inclusive design. So um, I have a nephew that, uh, when he was four, was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy. And in the first year after that, I just saw my you know, sister and her family go through a huge kind of wave of, it's like standing on a beach and watching a tsunami come at you. You know, mm. it hasn't hit yet, but the knowledge has. And I just wanted to say I cared. So I decided to sign up and do a triathlon. And I chose to do one uh, just south of Sydney. Um, it was the Nationals. It was a long course. Put myself through more pain. People might uh, give you a bit more money. And I just raised some money for the Research Foundation. And what I didn't realise is actually that was a qualification course for the World Championships. And I set some goals in terms of time that people had to pay me more if I went faster. 
and yeah, uh, yeah I, I hit those goals and by accident qualified for the world championship, which was a little bizarre. And uh, that wow. opened a whole door in a very unusual way that I followed for four years and yeah, ended up racing for Australia for, for three years professionally. Incredible. It's an incredible story. But when you know, you look at that, um, you know, one door closes, another one opens and you entered into the world of sports, you know, tell us a little bit about how you see in your own mind, um, you know, elite athleticism uh, and how that you know relates to inclusivity. Well, what do, uh, you must see some parallels between the two worlds. Absolutely. Um, it's really interesting. In fact, I was talking to a young athlete uh, just a week ago and saying, you don't yet realize how many of the skills that you're building up through your sporting mm. career at the moment you will use in every part of your life as you go forward. So I guess you know a couple of the key ones. One, just do the work. You don't get to go faster by thinking about it, just working on technique. You have to do all these things. You need to eat well. You need to sleep well. You need to you know, really work on, on finessing your, your technique. But actually, at the end of the day, you also just need to do the work. Whether it's hard work, do it hard. If it's going long and slow, mm. do it long and slow. So not just doing the work, but doing it really specific to purpose. Yeah. That is completely parallel with running a business. You know, we need to really focus on you've only got X amount of time. It's like your energy in a day that you've got to really focus on the things that most count. And actually, you know, one thing about Open as a business is I set up Open. It's an impact first business. It is actually a for profit, but we're, we're an impact first goal. Mm. And we're a small team. So we really need to focus on making sure every drop of energy we put out there has the greatest impact and influence it can have. And that's, you know, if we're doing something that's, um, you know, hard and fast and like a sprint training, do it hard and fast. If it's something yeah. that needs to be slow burn and, and long build, do mm. it in that way. But, you know, be very specific and do the work. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because like I've, I've done travel on before and, you know, if you don't do the training, you know, it, you're exposed on the day of the race and you're exposed, you know, in your lack of training, your lack, lack of preparation. And the same is true for design. Like if you don't do your, your work and we're going to talk today around inclusion and accessibility, if you don't include those in your, in your training, so to speak, or in your processes, you're going to get exposed. It's absolutely true. And I, I think it's, you know, there's that lovely Gary player quote, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Um, yeah. You still need at the end of the day to have everything together on the day. And that's true whether it's workplace day when you're in front of a client or, you know, exposing something to your customers for the first time or whether it's, you know, a triathlon on the day of the race. You can mm -hmm. only influence all the things you can bring to it. Um, but the better you do that and the better you turn up, the luckier you're going to be and the more influence you'll yeah. have. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about inclusion um, and inclusivity how do you describe it and um, you know bear in mind that not everyone uh, has the same definition so imagine you're trying to describe it to a five-year-old child I, it's actually everyone does have a different definition and it's pretty misunderstood I try and flip it on its head a little bit and say understand exclusion 
because everybody understands the feeling of being excluded from something, mm -hmm. whether it was that they were too small, too tall, too old, too young, their hands were too big or too small. You know, everyone understands the frustration of something not quite working for them. And actually yeah. inclusion is all about getting rid of those moments where it doesn't work because of an individual difference. That difference might be the way we sense, the way we move, the way we think, the way we feel or the way we communicate. So, you know, all sorts of differences that we have within any human um, mm. and every human is different. So, the, you know, just to define accessibility versus inclusion, because a lot of people, you know, particularly coming from a, a digital design background, will be very aware of digital accessibility. That mm -hmm. means designing in for people who have disabilities, who are, who basically would be defined as disabled under, you know, any legislation. So in, in England, that's the EA Act or the ADA in the USA. Um, and so that's designing in for their requirements and specifically thinking about people who use assistive technologies or people who adapt the way that they're interacting with their environment or sensing their environment. But actually inclusion is much, much broader than that. It includes all of us when we have those moments of exclusion because we might be operating one-handed or we might be in a country mm. where we don't speak the language as a first language or we might, you, know, you were talking that you had an early morning this morning because of your young child, because you're tired and stressed. Um, that's yeah. cognitive diversity and that's going to require, you know, that's going to create exclusion to a certain degree. So my view of designing is designing for as many people in as many contexts as possible so that the experience is as effective as possible mm. consistently. Yeah. So we, we're going to build on that later on in the conversation, but the next one, you mentioned accessibility there. And in my experience, people tend to get these mixed up and you know they're, they use them interchangeably at times. Um, how do you define accessibility and how is it interrelated to inclusivity? The way I define accessibility, which is not necessarily the way everyone does, but I really think about accessibility uh, as ensuring you can at minimum get access to the content that's being created. Um, mm. And there's a legal requirement. It's not just getting access, but being able to interact with it. So, you know, in, in the digital world, the WCAG, the World Content Accessibility Guidelines, defines what accessibility is at the moment. And, you know, they've, they've just released their latest draft of 2.2. 2.1 came out last year, and there's a clear set of guidelines. This is what is required at minimum. For an organisation who, say, is creating a customer journey around online shopping, um, there is this minimum, and it's a bit like if you think about a, a horse jumping in a, a paddock and, you know, the horse jump with its different bars, that's the minimum bar you have to hurdle. If you don't go over that, you're really putting your organisation at risk of legal, um, of legal action, but also, you know, that is the minimum requirement that, you know, customers these days just expect, and these are the customers that, um, you know, are very aware of accessibility guidelines. They're written down and clear. Above that is the kind of experience side, which is how does your journey, how does your online shopping journey work for people with differences? And that's that end-to-end -end piece. And it's a bit like the difference between uh, looking at customer experience and, and designing for a piece of the journey or designing for that end-to-end -end journey, which, of course, you know, this is HCD, you talk about all the time. It's it's taking it to that, the way the customer interacts with your organisation, the job they need to be done, and how smoothly and easily they can do that. 
and inclusion is about moving that bar up to a point that it is brand accredited to your organisation to have created that experience. Like a lot of this is just, you know, it's common knowledge to a lot of our listeners, but we do also have quite a lot of business people um, listening in in the podcast over the last uh, number of years. And, you know, one of the things that I have noticed is very, very often um, businesses believe that they actually are inclusive and, you know, designing for accessibility by default. So a good um, sort of uh, you know segue into the next question would be, what do you say to businesses when you go in as a practitioner? And um, they say, oh, yeah, you know, we do include inclusion in our, in our design process or we consider accessibility, but really they don't. How do you get around that? Um, I always it's really just asking them how they do it. And that usually exposes the what they know and what they don't know. So essentially, in fact, we were talking to a client yesterday and using the analogy of the the cockpit in a plane. And essentially, if you don't have information about customers with specific needs and how they experience your organisation, it's a bit like trying to fly a plane without any of the the dashboard Um, or with a dashboard where each side of of every um, metre has been hidden so that you can't see what happens beyond that. So we would just kind of question and expose what do they know, what don't they know, how do they ask, are they asking in a way that is actually going to expose their understanding so that whether it's the customer side or workplace inclusion, that they really do understand what the experience they're creating for people with every you know every kind of difference. A good um, you know analogy that, that I've been using over the last couple of years is businesses say, well, look, you know, we do, that's only 1% of our business. One percent of our business, like you know, we tend to design, put our focus on the other, the, on the majority. And I bring them back to the, the sort of the bare bone facts that if you've got a, a customer base or a user base um, of say a million people, that's still ten thousand people that are being excluded in that process. So if you look at that analogy um, and using the metaphor of a of a real world scenario, say like you go to order. Forgive me, I'm going to use a burger analogy, but say you went to somewhere like McDonald's that they're everywhere around the world and the counter was at five foot high um, and, you know, you weren't able to read the menu because it was too far away. It This just wouldn't work. It wouldn't make business sense because, you know, those 10,000 people, you know, it affects the bottom line. But for whatever reason, in the digital realm, we seem to just be like accepted that that's okay. So absolutely, yeah. And how can we do better? Yeah, and actually, your 1% is a little off because pe- what people don't realise, and, and obviously that's a you know, specific need, but yeah. what people don't realise, 20% um, of customers in the UK or USA or across Europe, it's about 20% across all of those, or 15% globally, um, are disabled, permanently have an access need, a, a, a significant access need impacting their day-to-day life. 20%, one in five of your customers, requires you to have considered this deeply because they cannot access your products or services if you haven't. Now, add to that, that's the people with long-term access needs, so long-term health conditions or disabilities. There's then people who have shorter term, and you know, in the UK, I know the stats there best, um, they're people with an impairment, so they might have broken their arm, they might be going through treatment for a specific uh, condition or a health, health condition at the time. That is over 30% of people. So wow. one in three of your customers has a need today. Now we're talking about 
temporary and permanent put together. We haven't mm. added situational. And then when you add situational, I might be buying as a parent of someone who's got an access need, who's got a disability. I might be buying as someone who is really tired today and really doesn't want to read the fine print and long language that you've used. Um, and that's that situational needs. That's going to be well over 50% of your customers will have a challenge with the way yeah. you've designed a product if you haven't considered this. So firstly, I suppose, is this is much bigger than people realise. Um, and the main reason for that is about 80%, 80 to 90% of disability is not visible. So when you think about disability being, you know, the person in the wheelchair or the person with the white cane and the, the guide dog, you know, the, the service dog. The stereotype. That's yeah. right. That's what we see. But actually, difference is very profound and, and most of it is quite hidden within someone. Yeah. And they'll work out very, very good adaptive techniques to manage that in a way that you probably won't notice that and perceive that um, unless you know them deeply. So one of the one of the things that most of the listeners will know that I've got a young family and, you know, two kids under three. And, you know, I have to obviously you know, we, we go out and about and I've got the pram and mm -hmm. going into the city with the pram. It, uh, it has totally opened my eyes to how, um, you know, inaccessible lot, large parts of, of cities around the world are, you know, steps into shops and, um, you know, buses and without ramps and so forth. And it, it just, you know, blows my mind that in 2020, we're still at this point. So why are these problems that you that I, I encounter on a daily basis, you know, going around with a pram, which, you know, is is entry in accessibility to buildings and stuff why are these still persisting what, what what is causing this thing is it is it like um you know lack of awareness is it lack of knowledge is it lack of uh, interest what, what what do you see is causing these things i think there's a range of factors there is at first it's messy um, people's differences are many and varied. So we talked about sensing and moving, thinking, feeling and communicating. They all yeah. require different responses. You're talking about you know, moving, obviously, step-free access with a pram, whether it's a pram, whether you've got a trolley bag, whether you're a wheelchair user, you, know, you mm. require step-free access. Um, but that's a design outcome for a specific you know, mobility requirement. So it's a little bit messy. I think there's fear. I think fear and complexity are two of the biggest barriers to people stepping into inclusive design. From the service providers. Yes, I think both from the organisations themselves and also from designers. So um, the, the organisations and the design agencies that mm. are you know, really at the leading um, edge, I think, of, of their craft are seeing... This isn't just an opportunity to make right, to, to not create bad experience. This is a real opportunity to create good experience. There's a bulk of design in the middle that's fairly average that really looks at the a, a generic experience in the middle and doesn't doesn't stretch themselves out to the edges to get the value of that. And and partly they might not Having, having not gone there, you don't know how much gold dust is out on the edges of that experience curve. And I guess the one thing that I'd really like to, um, you know, remind people, whether it's organisations um, that are providing experience directly to their, their customers or whether it's people designing uh, experiences for clients, that 
actually once you step into this, you don't need to take on everything all at once. Just start that learning journey. Start by uncovering the experience and working through the experience that you've uncovered, where the barriers are, where the friction is. And then work back from there and just prioritise it in so that this is a journey. There, there is no – in fact, mm. I was listening to um, Jenny Le Fleury from Microsoft talk about this the other day. And Microsoft really lent into inclusive design about mm. five or well, – really over a decade ago. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, um, <clears throat> since such has been running the company, really heavily lent into this and really strategically trying to differentiate their organisation with this. And she talks about the fact that they're never going to get there. Um, and this is an organisation that's truly committed to it and, and really yeah. trying to make change. No one gets there. This is a journey. So it doesn't matter where you step on the journey. Um, I do suggest that there is a better way how to step on the journey, which is put customer insight at the core of that. Yeah. Um, but in terms of stepping in and just starting, just get going. And that, that complexity and that fear starts to unravel quite quickly once people are in there. So a good example, yesterday um, I had a, had a phone conversation about a client who um, is kind of like the middle person between the real client, if that makes sense. And the real client wanted to uh, get some personas because they're in the early stages of growth and they figure that they need to get some personas. So I said, well, look, you know, they're they're based globally and we'd have to do these things remote. And I was explaining to the middle person, uh, we'll call him Dave for our argument's sake, I was explaining to Dave that like, if I just let them create the personas and I, you know, they take them and then they own them and then they use them. They'll tend to use a couple of actors within those personas and they're designed for the average and they'll miss all these opportunities that we're talking about here. Like, you know, so they'll just, you know, and that's fine. Like in, in traditional design research, you know, we've, we've created our personas and it could be like, you know, single mom or whatever, like you've seen these personas for years but then they forget about all these other people and all these other people with really true needs that the one percenter, or as you're saying, the 30 percenters, they never get, in, never get picked up. So how and what can we do to ensure that they're getting better represented? A great question. And personas are something, you know, we find challenging. We have been asked to do personas in the past. And I guess the, the key thing from our perspective is to really create characters truly multi-dimensional you know, relevant characters not caricatures which often get used as you say the single mum doing this um, people are messy you know humans are messy I think you know we've talked about this human-centered design is not very human at the moment the one thing that is you know guaranteed to be consistent across any humans is we're different from each other so that is our point of consistency and if we take that as the underpinning truth for design that if you're taking you know if you believe you're a human-centered designer and if you understand that humans are messy and 100% of us are different from everyone else then we're designing for difference we're not designing for character you know caricatures in the center that don't really exist actually a really good example of this um, there's a, a great book um, Rebel, Rebel Ideas um, by Matthew Sayed and he was talking about this example in a, a US airfield where they had designed the cockpit for the average male height and it was an average of 11 different measures yeah. And when they looked across the 3,000 airmen on that particular airbase, how many people do you think ticked the boxes of those 11? You know, zero. Not one man, not a single man yeah. was average. 
And so mm. if we take each dimension, and that's where I say, if rather than take average, look at the dimensions. And if you say, here is the top of this one dimension of, say, neck length or the way in which people interact, you know, the size of fingers, or, um, mm. if people, you're thinking about touch targets or people's dexterity, if you think about the top and the bottom end for each of those single dimensions, mm. then you can design for that. And then if yeah. you extend those tops and bottoms, you're going to make, make sure that that works whether someone's standing on a train and it's jiggling about or whether mm. um you know that day they're having to wear gloves and they're or mm. you know they're skiing and and they're using their nose or they're using you know some other part of their body like their little finger you know? yeah so that's where design becomes much more durable by taking yeah. each of those elements and saying what's the extended usage of that element um and that, that's a role for, for designers, I think, to really lean into this recognition that human-centred design or design thinking, as we think of it at the moment, is really failing a lot of humans. Absolutely. And I, just to be clear, like I'm, I'm using design broadly, so that includes design research. Yes. And you know, the whole process, it's not, if anyone's listening, the, the interpretation of design is not about designing the interface or any of that kind of stuff. It goes right back to the start, you know, the creation and you know, the capturing of the raw data you know, um, and really including those people, um, you know, within that data set. And then one of the bits that is too often overlooked is the, the prototyping world and taking those prototypes that we create and bringing them out into the real world and testing them in real world scenarios. That is the one thing that I'm always saying to people, like, don't test in an office, don't test, test out in the wild, go out yeah. there. That's where the really, really rich fruit and the low-hanging fruit is is persistent absolutely you know we we totally think think of it in the same way that you know for us design starts at that asking and learning setting your context of what you're trying to solve and and it doesn't really finish because even once you built it you're you're still reviewing what you can improve of it but all the way through in each part of that process so in that ask and learn at that point specifically go out and get some extreme insights get some perspectives from people who are at those edges of sen you know sensory interactions or mobility and dexterity or the way they think people who are neurodiverse people who have different language backgrounds and so on when you're designing get some of those people that you've engaged with um, or engage some people specifically to co-design that with you and you'll find Actually, particularly people with permanent disabilities, you know, who have lived with disability for a very long time, are the most natural hackers and creatives out there. Because the world as it stands today isn't designed for them. It's often they have to design their interactions around that. And they end up being, you know, not everyone, but there is a real level of creativity that people are required to kind of step into um, in order to adapt effectively in the environments they're in. So co-designing is great. Yeah. One of the things that um, I, I often observe is, you know, people listen to the podcast and they chuckle away at that analogy of or that story of the cockpit and the designing process. They're like <laughs> idiots, you know, like how, how do they get to that? How do they let that happen? And sometimes the joke is actually right in front of their own eyes and they, they could be part of their own problem. They don't see it. Mm. You know, like we, we could have another case in our own business, you know, and what I'm trying to understand better is, you know, when we first reached out um, and we started speaking, like the first thing you said to me was like human centered design is, you know, is letting people down. And 
And I was like, yeah, okay, I know. And at the moment, there's there's quite a lot of um, backlash for human centered design. Um, but to me, it's it's the you know what's the alternative to yeah. this? First of all, is the, the question that I always come back to, and it's it's an evolving thing. Like if it's not working, let's improve it. Absolutely. I think I think I was a little more blunt than that. I think I said humans, human centered design is broken. Um, but actually, long live human centered design. I don't think the process is broken. I think the way in which we're implementing that process is broken. Right. So let's talk. I know you've got a, a framework that you sent across and uh, had a good look at. So let's talk about this framework and, and let's understand how it, how it differentiates between, say, and I'm doing air quotes here, um, the traditional human-centered design process. Absolutely. I guess the main way in which it differentiates, and it, it kind of goes to what you were asking before, which is how do people know that they don't have an equivalent failure of that airbase yeah. in their own world? And actually, the way in which that airbase failure, um, the, the Air Force failure kind of was, was highlighted at the time was people were dying. So they yeah. realised that people were dying at a much higher rate than they had been before and they just didn't understand why and it took quite a while to unpick that. So it hit something very, very extreme before people started to work mm. backwards. What we're trying to do is work with organisations and share this experience with um, you know, designers and particularly your researchers and customer experience people out there. How do you actually ask the question before you've had the major failure? And in fact, this, the, that starting point, which is, if you're understanding your customer experience deeply, so if you're doing good insight and research into the customer experience that are being provided um, from the designs that you've created to start with as an organisation, you'll understand where your fail points are. What you won't necessarily understand is why you're failing. So you know, the, you understand that that the airmen are dying, that, that these crashes were happening, but it takes a while to unpick the why. Mm. And actually starting with make sure that you're listening, the listening posts are in place and that you do understand customer experience and that you're listening in a broad enough way to really understand both friction and, and failure um, of the customer experience as it stands today. And that's very, you know, the model you were talking about, we, we look at all of the environments. So we're very much end-to-end um, -end journey based. So does it do the job to be done that the person's come to the organization for? And they mm. might choose to do that in a <clears throat> digital way through a physical engagement, either product or an environment. They may engage with people for customer service and actually they'll have yeah. an expectation of the brand um, and, and the kind of communications that go out about that brand mm. before they've even interacted. So they're yeah. the different environments they can interact with. And then yeah. different people will interact in different ways because of themselves as opposed to which channel they chose. And that can be sensory differences of vision and hearing, physical differences of mobility and dexterity, all the ways people um, receive information, process that information and communicate. So learning, memory and social and speech differences. So that's, that's what we start with is that understand the customer experience across those four environments that, that we've kind of boxed things into and across that range of different needs. So so say um, the people are listening and they're like, yeah, well, we do. Like, we, we do that already. Um, what exactly can they do more of in that stage of the early stage research? How can they ensure that they've covered all the bases? I guess 
making sure that within the research cohort, within the participants that they're engaging with, there are people with really specific access needs. So people with lived experience of disability, people who use assistive technologies, whether that's something as simple as a, you know, a cane or a service dog, or whether that's a, a digital interface that they, they use an assistive technology to support their digital interactions, or whether they just adapt in different ways, like, um, you know, pinch zooming things because it's difficult to see. Um, or in a shop, you know, you see people literally taking a, a magnifying glass into the shop and trying to read the labels on a, um, on a particular piece of packaging. So include people in that front-end research that have really quite strong needs and mm. obviously if you're including people with strong needs the research itself needs to be designed inclusively so that um, you need to be recruiting inclusively so you get you know people know to, to find you they know that you're asking for them um, you need to provide information to them for the research itself in a way that's really um, adaptive to them and then keep them safe and, and provide, you know, so that we were talking about this the other day, they save their glycogen, they save their energy for actually providing you that richness of insight yeah. rather than just getting there, getting away and managing the experience itself. Yeah. So ju just to cover that bit off, Christine, you know, it's including people um, with different access needs, such as mobility, learning, vision, hearing, memory, dexterity and social and speech. So, you know, if we include those, uh, you know, needs, as part of the the research and the the raw data set you know we will have successfully um you know in, improved the process i guess to to include the more diverse needs is that correct that gives the fuel that means that you actually that understand the, the experience so that is the fuel that can fuel a great design process during the design process, you need to then use that fuel and actually you need to re-engage that fuel and refuel a few times. So then when we're thinking about once you've got a concept, you think this is what I'd like to do and I think this is how it could do, you can either do that alongside in a co-designed way or you can do you know, a very low fidelity prototype and we've done usability testing with anything from paper prototypes upwards. So And then test that you can do focus groups where you go if you had something like this where it's not even a prototype yet but it's a concept and get conceptual feedback and then obviously as that prototype goes from very low fidelity or very early stage concept through to something that's much more tangible and testable testing that even with a small group of you know 10 to 12 people that have significant you know access needs in any of these areas you're going to get such rich insights that will show you where those friction and breakpoints may be in the future if you weren't aware of them. Yeah. So this, just for anyone listening, we're going to put a link to this framework in the show notes. Um, just so, so I'm aware that you know we are speaking about a framework and sometimes it's very hard to visualize these things. So there'll be a link in the show notes if you want to follow along as we're speaking about these things. Christine, you know, just we're coming towards the end of, of the, the episode here. Um, what are the things do you think um, people are missing as regards uh, the whole inclusivity or accessibility? Is there anything else you want to add? I think that one key thing is what we've mainly spoken about is how to understand and improve a current experience. Actually, the, mm. the, we talk, just touched on it before, that gold dust at the edge that I mentioned, at the edge of experience where people have got much stronger experience, that's where you find the ideas for quite significant improvement of design and that's where innovation lies. Yeah. So, And it's really human-centred innovation mm. because it's not – 
using a piece of emerging tech because there's this new emerging tech there. Oh, we can do something in immersive. Let's use VR and let's find a way of using it. This actually comes from an unmet need and a really significant unmet need. And then saying, how can we solve that using the way solutions mm. are emerging now, whether it's a new business model or a new technology or old technology being applied differently? Um, or even things like just a bit of customer service training can sometimes make a really significant difference. But innovate, innovation lies at the end of this. And for organisations that are wanting to significantly differentiate on the basis of how their customers feel about them, actually inclusive design is a fabulous lever. We, we actually co-created a great tagline to that, like inclusivity is a path to greater and richer innovation. And it's so true. Um, you know, really by including um, everybody and designing for all, you're going to get a much better outcome. Absolutely. So um, if people want to reach out to you, Christine, how might they go about doing it? Are you on, on Twitter? Yes, I'm fairly easy to find. On Twitter, our handle is open for access. Um, yeah. On LinkedIn, link in the show notes. yeah, on LinkedIn, Christine Hempel. I don't think there's too many Christine Hempels. Um, and Open Inclusion is just openinclusion.com is our website. Christine, it was great chatting with you today. Um, I'm looking forward to hopefully connecting face to face at some point. Um, but thanks very much for your time. Absolute pleasure, Jerry. You guys have a good day. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com, where you can join the Slack community and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world, or join the HCD newsletter where you can win books and get updates. Subscribe to our content on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and listen to any of our other podcasts, such as Getting Started in Design, Bringing Design Closer with myself, Jerry Scullion, or Power of Ten with Andy Palain or Decoding Culture with Dr. John Curran, Prod Pod with Adrian Tan and Ethnopod with Jay Hasbrook. Thanks for listening and see you next time.